Um, this morning we're going to go on a little bit of a journey uh, as we continue in our Living Hope uh, sermon series. We're going to go uh, time traveling. Uh, anybody ever wanted to go time traveling? Um, I don't know if it's physically possible. Um, there's theories, but we're going to go ahead and do it today, even if it's only in our imagination. Uh, we're going to go back in time uh, about 2,000 years into the Middle East. Um, but we're not going to go as tourists. We're not going to go, you know, one of the, the things in all the time travel movies and books is like you, you have to be like an observer. Don't interfere. Well, we're going to go. We, we, we aren't going as tourists. We're actually going um, because we've been given a job to do. I know. It's Sunday, right? We're supposed to be resting, but we got, we got work to do. We've been given a project. Um, we've been given a job of construction planning. Right? They, they want to build something, these people 2,000 years ago, and they want us to go and figure out <coughs> how to build this, some construction planning. Um, now, before we get into that, before we, we do our time travel, imagination, exploration type of thing, um, we need to understand a little bit about the world that we're going to be entering into. Okay? Uh, ancient Middle East, uh, we, we want to understand their views on God, um, their views on their gods' locations, like how their gods function in the world. Because remember, um, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, it seems like all the interactions with the people, Israel had interactions with all these foreign nations and foreign peoples, and they all had different gods. And, and, and the story in the Old Testament is that the people of God would sometimes worship the wrong gods and, and, and would do that type of thing. So in the ancient days, um, even time before Jesus, there was this idea that there was multiple gods. And depending on what your tribe was, where you grew up, what region you were, you know, born into, you know, the expanse of empires as, the, you know, nations were conquered and traditions were shared, um, these gods would be kind of various, varying from place to place. Um, and so, like, the, the Roman Empire, it, it was a, a kind of a big, powerful empire in the in the days before Jesus and time of Jesus they would go and they'd conquer a people and part of their peacemaking to try and make things okay was they would they would allow those people to keep worshiping their own gods and so if you lived in one particular region if you lived in Egypt you would worship their sun gods and moon gods and and gods of fertility and, and gods of harvest and gods of of animals like there's all these different types of gods there's a pantheon of gods and and we see this in all the different regions. It was, it was a unique thing to have one God. Um, so there's all these different views of gods, and, and they'd serve different purposes. <clears throat> now, keeping that in mind, um, there was a way to connect with these gods. So in these ancient days, you had the gods of the sun, the moon, fertility, whatever. And, and if you wanted something with these, from these gods or you needed something from these gods, you'd have to interact with them. So the idea was, and it's similar to kind of what we believe, that, you know, there's this, gods are spiritual beings. They're not physical beings walking around. They're spiritual beings in a spiritual realm. But they could interact with the physical world, right? So these gods weren't completely isolated and separate from the physical world. They, they could interact, but the way that they did was through a specific location, there would be a specific place where, where the spiritual world, the spiritual gods, could come and interact and meet, knock on the door, and have that door opened and torn, uh, you know, any that barrier torn away, and the, the spiritual world could interact with the physical world. 
And there would be people in these places on the physical world side of things that would interact with the spiritual things and they would come out and say, the God says this, or you need to sacrifice this and we'll, we'll make sure that, that that sacrifice makes it into the spiritual world. Um, that your prayers could come and be offered. And yeah, you could pray wherever you are, but if you come to this specific location, that God is close and is listening. And we have priests and, and oracles that would help navigate and, and, and build that bridge between the spiritual world and the physical world. And those places were called temples. And so all over the world, you have these temples that represented, and, but not only represented, but were, according to these beliefs, the place where the spiritual world touched the physical the way that spiritual things made it into the physical world was through the temple, through the priests, out into the physical world. You know, like we, we talk about, I mean, I even prayed it a few minutes ago, that God is everywhere. That would have been a bit of a foreign concept. Um, God is, was the spiritual place for these people. And the way that God, that spiritual being, exerted power, influence on the physical world was through the temple and the temple priests and the workers there. Right, so it was the house of God. It was where you went if you needed to interact with your, with your God, whether it be for a good harvest or, you know, victory on the battlefield or, you know, blessings on your family or whatever it might be. So you, we had this temple. And so if you haven't put the pieces together yet, today we're going to be going back in time, 2,000 so years, to build a temple. Um, that's our job. We're going to build this temple. It's a place that not only symbolizes God's presence in the world. If you want to know where God is, you go to the temple. But it also functions as God's presence in the world. The temple demonstrates what kind of God is being worshipped. Right? So when you, when, the reason we know so much about these ancient temples is because they were massive structures that have lasted for thousands of years. You can go to the, the ruins of temples. There's actually some ancient temples that are still standing and that's how we know so much about them is because they were built with uh, great wealth and great care to be large, massive structures. Because what, what the temple represented, symbolized, was the presence of God. And so what kind of God you had uh, was represented by this temple. So you didn't want like a little tiny temple. You didn't want, you know, a budget temple. You wanted a big, expensive dominating, powerful structure high up on a hill that overlooked everything else because you wanted everybody to know that that's how your God was, big and powerful and dominating and high above everything else. There's a story in the Old Testament where King David uh, wanted to build a temple for God. It's in 2 Samuel. David it says David had his own palace as king of Israel. He had a palace, but God's dwelling place was in a tabernacle from the wilderness. And I'm not going to go into all the details, but if you know the, the Exodus story, the people of, of, of God were freed, right? And they went into the wilderness, and that was kind of how they lived for, for generations. And they worshiped God in a tabernacle, which is just a fancy word for tent. They worshiped God in an easy-up canopy. Um, the Ark of the Covenant was there. The, the, the Ten Commandments were carried there. But their God lived in a tent. What does that say about your God if he's living in a tent? What does it say about you if you worship a God who's living in a tent? Like, we see this kind of in church architecture throughout the history, right? When, when the church got more power and more influence, it started building these massive buildings. Because who wants to go to a little 
tiny shack. What does that say about your God, right? Like that was the, the thought process. Is, is we, it, you, it was a visual representation of the glory and the might of your God. God can't live in a tent, David thought. But moving on from that, so our job is to build a temple for our God. Um, it's going to be, as I described a moment ago, a physical place in the world where God dwells. It will be where people can see what our God is like by looking at it. Just by looking at this, this temple, they will get an impression of what our God is like. Okay. Um, it's going to be where worship is conducted. So as this, this temple is built uh, and, and, and it's constructed, then, then worship can happen. Right? This is, this is when, when worship, acknowledgement, response, praise, prayer... All this can happen. Priests will actually work here. Priests will be in the midst of this temple, and sacrifice will happen here. The work of the priests is done in the temple. People will meet God in this temple. People will know to pray in, in this temple. And it's this place where people, in this temple that we are going to build, God and people are going to connect together. The spiritual is going to touch the physical. The physical that is desperate for for whatever the needs are of the physical world is going to be met through this temple. The spiritual is going to reach through and influence the physical world. And so we have to build our temple that is a proper dwelling place for God. And it represents God's real presence with us here. Okay, So again, 2,000 years ago, we're going to build a temple that represents our God, that lets people know what our God is like. So what are we going to build this temple with? Uh, wood is probably the most readily available resource, but what kind of temple can you build out of wood? Um, probably not impressive enough. Maybe a little too vulnerable. Um, wood rots, it catches fire, um, it can get blown over, right? Like it's just, it's not impressive enough for our temple. So the only other option really, if you're in the ancient Middle East 2,000 years ago, is stone, rock, right? We're not going to build it with little rocks, tiny rocks. We're not, we're not building a cottage in New England, right? We're not going to build fieldstone cabins. We want a, a temple that represents what our God looks like. So we're not going to use little stones, but we would probably need big stones, right? Large stones. Um, the builders of the temple in Jerusalem went this route. Uh, I, I know I've talked in the past about the temple and even shown some pictures, and we, I have another photo I want to show. Do I? Did I put it in there? Yeah, there it is. So this is the western wall. Uh, this is, you can go there today. Obviously, this is a recent picture. Um, it's the last kind of remaining structure of the, uh, the second temple, uh, the temple in Jerusalem in the time of Jesus. This is kind of where he would have, Jesus would have been around this. This is the western wall. And so on the other side of this wall would have been uh, the Holy of Holies, the place where God's presence was most real. Again, remember where the spiritual touches the physical? That was just on the other side of this wall. And so even though the temple got destroyed when the people of Israel started rebelling against the Roman Empire, uh, you know, shortly after Jesus' time, um, this wall remains. And some 2,000 years later, people go to this wall, and what they're doing by it is they write prayers on a piece of paper, and they slide it in the cracks. Well, they go and they pray. Um, it's, it's, a, it's an amazing thing. I've had the opportunity to be there. It's a massive wall. It's, you know, several stories high. And I, I chose this picture. I, I debated kind of a couple different ones because 
I thought you might be able to see a different perspective, but I wanted one with people in it. You can see the size of these stones compared to the size of the people. Those are normal sized people. Um, these, some of these stones are massive. Um, there's some stones that are underneath the wall, like the foundation stones, that are uh, 40 feet long and 12 feet, uh, 12 feet wide, and they weigh over 600 tons. And they're set next to each other to the point where there's some of them you can't even slip a piece of paper between them. Uh, it, was, it was designed to, to hold up the weight of all these other stones. And as you get to the top, you see the smaller squares. Those are probably a rebuild effort. At some point, the top of the wall was toppled, or we needed to make the wall taller at some point, whatever. But the bottom, you can see how large these stones are, how much weight is involved. So do you know how to get a 600-ton stone moved from a quarry and set in place on a wall next to another 600-ton stone so precisely that it's, it's square and flush, there's not even a gap between it. You know how to do that? Because nobody has figured that out yet. We're 2,000 years later, and modern technology, we haven't been able to duplicate. Like if we wanted to build this wall today, we would struggle to do so. Um, but what kind of stones are we going to use? Obviously, they chose big stones, um, but th this is going to represent our God. So like what type of rock do we want? Obviously, big, strong Sturdy, do we want damaged stones? No, obviously we want the, the ones that don't have cracks, don't have blemishes, that are maybe uh, have certain patterns in them that look more beautiful than others, right? But this, the, the, the damaged stones, the ones with blemishes, we're going to ignore those, set them aside. We're going to grab the most beautiful, the most perfect stones we can find. Because we want everyone to know how great God is. When they see this temple that we're building, we want them to go, oh, that's really impressive. Now we know about this God. Like, it tells a story. <clears throat> People should see it, be in awe. And that means we need perfect stones, only the best. So we start searching through the, the quarry or the rock pile for these stones. And we make a pile of stones that aren't good enough. Pick it up, examine it. Or, uh, you know, it's too big to pick up. We just examine it and, and say, this isn't, this doesn't meet the standards and so it's a rejected stone. We have a pile of rejected stones over here that just aren't going to represent our God well enough. We evaluate which stones are good enough to build with and which ones are not. And we evaluate them, like I said, based on strength, appearance, maybe how useful they are. Uh, and we reject the ones that don't make the cut. Now, keep that in mind. We're going to pause on our, our temple building project for a minute. And we're going to go to 1 Peter chapter 2. Our scripture for the morning, and we're going to hear about God's temple building effort. Um, again, it'll be on the screen. If you want to follow along in your Bible, it's really familiar if you've been in the church for any length of time. It's one of my favorite. Pa I know I say this all the time. It's one of my favorite passages of scripture. First um, Peter chapter two, verses four through ten. Um, it says, "As you come to Him, the living stone." Again. The stone is, it's, this is the connection we're making. The living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. To be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. 
For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, the stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Pray with me, if you will. Heavenly Father, we pray that through your spirit, you would gather our minds, that we may be one with you. Open our ears so we may hear your word. Soften our hearts so we may receive your wisdom. Speak to us, for we, your servants, are listening. Amen. So, I'm going to stick on the, the Peter scripture for a little bit. Let's dig into this for a moment. To understand fully what's going on here, you, you need to understand who he was writing to. right? So we've, we've got our Bible, we've got the scripture, and it's, oh, God gave this to us or provided it for us, which is 100% true. But Peter was, this was originally intended to Christians in his day when it was originally written. Um, so he's telling these people, you're a chosen people. He's writing to churches scattered throughout Asia Minor. And the way that this would work is he would write a letter and then there would be a messenger or messengers, probably just one, that would go on a, a route throughout Asia Minor to all these different churches. Maybe in Turkey, you know, modern day Turkey, there's like six churches or seven churches. And this messenger, he or she would go and, and would go to their gathering and would stand up like I'm doing now and just read the message and, and read the letter. And then after the letter was read, there would be a time for the congregation to ask questions. And the messenger would explain and try and help the congregation understand. And sometimes the messenger would be there for, for days or weeks or months and as, as they'd work through this letter. And then was, the time was appropriate, they'd move to the next church. And sometimes the churches, if they had the, the resources, the technology, the, the know-how, they would make copies of this letter. Um, and keep one for themselves. But otherwise, the messenger would take this, this letter on to the next church and go church to church. And so this book of First Peter is a letter that some individual physically took from one church to another and read aloud in their worship gatherings. These were letter, a letter written to Christians who not only confessed a belief in Jesus, but they embraced Jesus as their king. And as their king... They knew that Jesus was teaching them how to live. Setting the rules, the kingdom, the values, the, the ethics. They, they knew that the kingdom of God was a real alternative to the kingdoms and the empires in which they lived. So this messenger shows up and reads this letter about a different way of living. And they know that the, whoever the ruler is of the place that they're at has a different set of values, a different set of goals, different ethics for them, demands upon them. But they said, no, we've pledged our allegiance to King Jesus. 
This is a group of people that have been shaped by Jesus and his teachings. The, the Sermon on the Mount and other teachings are the way that they choose to live, sometimes rejecting, sometimes in full rebellion against the ways of the kings that, of the nations that they currently live in. They refused to live by the ways of the rulers and the ways that their land wanted them to. And some of these people, it was often the poor, the orphan, the widow, the sick, the weakest, enslaved people, unmarried women with very low status in their society, men without any great abilities or education, um, people without status, prestige, people without wealth. This is who entered into the gatherings of the earliest church. These people in these churches either refused to participate in the ways of the kingdom of the world or they were not capable of contributing to the kingdom of the world. Right? If you were trying to build a kingdom that was strong and powerful, uh, these people would not be the most helpful. If you were trying to build a society that, that represented your God or your, your, your nation's glory, that represented your values of strength and might and power, that's, that instilled fear in your enemies, these are not the people you'd march out on the front lines. If you were trying to build a, a powerful empire, you'd look at the, the people that became members of these churches and you would say, these are not the stones that I'm looking for. These are not the stones with which I want to build. And so these stones, these, these people got set aside. They're in the rejected stone pile, given no value, no worth, no, no usefulness to build the empire. Not good enough to build with was the label. But God gathered up these rejected stones these living stones, as First Peter calls them, for one reason or another, that who had been deemed not worthy. But God gathers them up and includes them in building the kingdom of God. God goes from quarry to quarry, rock pile to rock pile, and chooses these imperfect and rejected stones for his own building project. God claims these as his own. And so now, all over the Middle East, all over the Roman Empire, Asia Minor, and beyond, God gathered these stones who were living people and declared that they were chosen. That they were gathered stones who will be used to build the temple in which God will dwell. They went from being rejected by this world to be chosen by God. And, and this imagery in in. 1 Peter chapter 2 is, is an imagery of a temple being built. This temple made of not regular stones, not big heavy rocks mined from a quarry, but this temple is made of living stones. It's still a temple though. It's going to be the physical place in which God dwells. The world, the physical world is going to encounter, it's going to meet the spiritual God through this temple. It's just not built of stone. This temple made of rejected living stones will be where people can see what God is like. This temple made of living stones will be where worship is conducted. Priests will work here. Sacrifices will happen in this temple. The work of the priest is done in the temple. People 
will meet God in the temple. People know to pray in the temple. It's a place where people and God connect. But this temple is not a physical location. It's not on a map. It's not high on a hill hovering above the, the conquered people. It's not a physical location. It's a fellowship. It's a connection made of these living stones as they're brought together in the name of Jesus. They've been gathered to build his temple to, for God to dwell in. Because as we read all throughout scripture, God dwells in his people. Now, today, our culture is very individualistic. We hear things, we read scripture, we listen to teaching through the lens of, of, of ourselves. This is kind of the natural default filter. doesn't mean we're bad people or selfish, but we just, we've been trained to think in terms of individuals. So when um, we read the scripture and it says you, we often think, oh, me. But the you here is plural, kind of like y'all. Right? If you're in the original Greek, it's a, it's a plural. It's yous or y'all. You together, all y'all, are the temple of God. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's not denying that God lives in us as individuals. I'm not saying that. And, but the emphasis is God dwelling in us as we are gathered together, as we live in community, as we are formed into a singular body known as the church. It's in this body that God dwells. Because what kind of temple are you going to build with one stone? What does one stone tell anybody about your God? What kind of worship happens with one stone? It's as these living stones are gathered, restored, redeemed, and put together by God do we see this holy temple that God is building. We can see a stone by itself, and it can be a really nice stone, it can be a good stone, but it's when the stones are put together do we start to say, oh, that's the temple. Oh, that's what this God is like. God is building this temple from rejected stones. And then as this temple of living stones is built, there's a need for priests to offer sacrifices. There's uh, a need for people to lead the worship to proclaim God's praise. And Peter says that that's what these churches are. If you remember the scripture from a few moments ago, it says, but you... Again, all y'all, yous, are a chosen people. You all are a royal priesthood. You all are a holy nation. And don't think nation is country. Think nation is people. That's what it means here. God's special possession. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you, y'all, yous, however you want to try and make you plural, in English, once you were not a people, but now you, you all, now you are the people of God. We are the stones that God uses to build his dwelling place amongst his people. What that means is that we are the temple. We aren't a building, of course, we're a body. We aren't just stones, but we're living stones. We scatter into the world and we bring God's presence with us. We perform spiritual sacrifices 
just not in a specific room, in a specific building, but everywhere we go. We are the priests sent into the world to offer forgiveness, grace, mercy as we go. The praises of God are not only heard in this church building, but throughout the entire world because these living stones go to the ends of the earth. Because we are these living stones, people can see God's presence in the world, not just in Jerusalem where the physical temple was built at one point, but wherever God's people are living faithfully to a new identity that we have been given. Again, we are a holy people, royal, divine priesthood. God desires to have a dwelling place amongst God's people, so God gathers and scatters these rejected or God gathers the scattered and rejected stones. He took the ones that the world didn't want and built a temple from them for the whole world to see what kind of God we serve. For the whole world to hear the praises and the good news about our God. God built a temple out of these rejected living stones for the whole world to receive forgiveness from as they're offered up by the priesthood that God has called into existence. And as good as this, this story is, and I, I love it at this point, like we, if we stopped right here, it'd be like, this is awesome. The rejected stones have been built into this amazing temple for the world to see who our God is. That's a great story if we stop right there. But that's not the end of it. We're not even to the good part yet. The best part of this temple that's being built is the cornerstone. A cornerstone is the stone around which all the other stones are oriented. It's laid on ground, and it is the one in which every other stone built into the building is, is placed in alignment to. Because if you're not in alignment with the cornerstone, the whole building's going to get wonky. That's a technical term. And so every stone that is set is set to match up and line up with the cornerstone. It's a foundation stone. Things are built upon it. The weight of the structure is born upon this foundation stone, this cornerstone. Everything else rests upon it. Oftentimes, it's the primary focal point of the structure. And what did Peter say the cornerstone of this new temple built with living stones is to be? What is this cornerstone? Well, it's, even this cornerstone was rejected by the world. He didn't, God didn't build a temple out of rejected stones and then go get one really nice stone for the cornerstone. No, the, even the cornerstone was rejected by the world. First Peter says that cornerstone is Jesus. The story of Jesus shows us that the ones in power, the ones building the world as they saw fit, looked at Jesus and decided he did not belong in their vision of the world that they were building. And so he was rejected. That's not the type of stone for our building. We don't have room for a stone like that. We are looking for a more powerful stone, a wealthier stone, a stone that's going to conquer uh, using physical weapons, that's going to overthrow the world. So they rejected Jesus. But in God's temple, he's not just a stone. He's the cornerstone. And the scriptures tell us that this, he's a stone that others trip over and stumble upon because they can't navigate their way around him. 
that stone becomes the foundation of a spiritual house that we are being built into. God takes that rejected stone of Jesus and makes it the cornerstone upon which the church, these living stones, is gathered. If you're not a Jesus follower today, if you're saying, well, I'm not, I don't see myself as a, as a Christian, I'm maybe a, been coming to church to check things out or watching online to see what this is all about, but I, I don't see myself as a Jesus follower yet today, but I can identify with the idea of being a rejected stone. Maybe you've, you've felt like you've been judged by the world, rejected and cast aside because you weren't good enough, you didn't fit in, um, you didn't look right, then there's a message here for you today. God does not look at people the way the world looks at people. If you feel like you aren't good enough, you don't have the right status, talents, strengths, abilities, and because of that, the world has passed you by, I want you to know this. Right now, God is at work gathering you into his temple to be a living stone. Because at one point or another, every person who's a Jesus follower today was once in the pile of rejected stones. God's going to pick you up. He's going to orient you with the cornerstone. And he's going to include you in this wonderful thing that he's building called the church. This dwelling place of God. Not the building, but the people of God. This God is working to change your identity. Once you weren't a part of this people, once you weren't a part of the body, but now you can be a member of this body. Part of a holy people, part of a chosen people, to live out your lives collectively in community as part of the redemptive mission of God. So if you're someone who's like, I'm not sure I'm in this living stone temple thing that's going on here. I want you to think about this. The first step for you might be to let God gather you in. Let God reorient you to the cornerstone of Jesus. Let, let God be the one to align you as he is building you into something greater. Let God transform you into a member of this body, a part of this dwelling place, a living stone in his great temple. Let God align you with the ways of Jesus and Jesus himself. If you are a Jesus follower, know this. God doesn't want you to believe things about him. Right? We, we grow up in the church maybe and you, you're taught things about God and you're asked, do you believe this? And you say, yes, of course I believe this. Or you're learning and you say, oh, now I, now I know this and I believe it. But if, if, if that's your story, know, know that God doesn't just want you to believe these things about him. But God wants you to be the very temple in which he dwells. And so as we go from place to place, as we engage with others on social media, the presence of God is made known because we are the living stones that, compromise, or that comp comprise this temple. As we engage the world, we are the temple of God for the world to see and understand who our God is. We are those he has chosen from the rejected building stones, and he has built with us anyways. And as such, we've been empowered, equipped, and sent forth as priests into this world to announce God's presence and forgiveness. So embrace your identity as a chosen people. Be a royal priesthood, people who stand before God on behalf of other people. That's what a priest does, right? He's, a priest stands before God on behalf of people. He intercedes 
and the priest stands before people on behalf of God, <laughs> says, here's a message from God to you. So be a royal priesthood, someone who stands between God and people for the benefit of both. Be a holy people. Holy means set apart for God's special purposes. It doesn't mean be a perfect individual, never make a mistake, get everything right the first time you try it. That's not what holy means here, but a gathered community of people that together live out how God intended us to live. We're set apart for a specific purpose by our God. And then declare praises of the God who pulls us from darkness into light, from death into life. We are not just people. We are the people of God. Embrace that identity today and let it shape the way you think, the way you engage with others, and the way that you live. That when people encounter you, they are encountering the temple in which God dwells. And that the view that people are going to have of our God is going to be directly reflected upon how well we represent him. In the words of 1 Peter, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not this people, but now you are the people of God. One of the things that the people of God have been doing for 2,000 years plus has been gathering around a table, both physically and metaphorically, symbolically, gathering around a table and receiving the Lord's Supper, a meal that Jesus provided. Um, we call it communion, Eucharist. Communion is this sacrament that was instituted by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It means he, he, he started it. He initiated it. And it proclaims his life. When we do it, it announces his life. It announces his sufferings. It announces his sacrificial death. And it announces his resurrection. And it announces a hope in his coming again. Communion is a means of grace in which Christ is present through the Spirit. It is to be received in uh, reverent appreciation and gratefulness for the work of Christ. Again, as he has gathered us to be his temple. All those who are repentant, forsaking their sins and believing in Christ for salvation are invited to come. What that means is if you are hungry for God, if you need Jesus, <laughs> the invitation is to come to the table. You might say, well, I haven't put money in the offering plate. I'm not a member. I haven't prayed this prayer. I've never been, I've never been baptized. That's not, the, that's not the requirement according to this. <laughs> it's those who are seeking the grace and mercy of God. Those who desire to be built up into the temple of God's people. That's who the table is for. And so we come to that table today so that we may be renewed in life and salvation and we may be made one in the spirit. So it's in unity with the church that we confess our faith, that Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. And so we pray. Heavenly Father, we gather at this, your table, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, who by your Spirit was anointed to preach good news to the poor, proclaim release to the captives, set free those who are oppressed. 
Christ healed the sick. He fed those who were hungry. He ate with sinners and established a new covenant for the forgiveness of sins. We live in the hope of his coming again. On the night in which he was betrayed, Jesus took bread. He gave thanks, broke the bread, and gave it to the disciples. He said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, when the supper was over, he took the cup. He gave thanks and gave it to his disciples. He said, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. So, Father, we've, we've gathered today as the body of Christ to offer ourselves to you in praise and thanksgiving. We pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit on us and on these gifts. Make them by the power of your Spirit to be for us the very body and blood of Christ. That we may be for the world the same body of Christ, redeemed by his blood. By your spirit, make us one in Christ, one with each other, one in the ministry of Christ to all the world. Until Jesus comes in final victory. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I want to invite you now, as we've done uh, every Sunday for the uh, communion that we've done for a while now, uh, I want to invite you to participate in the, the praying of the Lord's Prayer. It'll be on the screen. Um, you may know it as the Our Father. You may know it as the Lord's Prayer. Um, but uh, it'll be on the screen. I just invite you to, to pray this with me. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. You will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Um.